Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revs dropped a frustrating 3-2 loss north of the border. Some poor defending, some iffy referee decisions uh, with a downfall for the Revs. Uh, on the bright side, Carlesil uh, did add a brace, but it was not enough to get a point against Toronto, uh, the Revs, with their second loss in the 2019 season. I'm Greg Johnstone. As always, Sean Donahue is joining me. Sean, happy St. Patrick's Day. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, but I would have been doing better if... Uh... <laughs> that game had gone a little bit differently um kind of a, a, a typical revolution performance in which they give you some hope and then pull it all the way at the end there it was fitting it was on st patrick's day because i need a drink after that one it was a roller coaster of a ride uh and for the second week in a row uh we are graced with our refereeing expert and we need him this week uh jake catanese of the bent musket is joining us um jake how's it going well i'm assuming i'm sober which means i'm assuming both of you are sober and that's not a happy place to be right now. No, it, it certainly isn't. And I, I, I'm going to go straight to you because I think the mm-hmm. big talking point and controversy from this game is going to be the second goal of the match, uh, <laughs> which I don't know if you want to give a breakdown of what you saw, uh, but I think everyone in real time thought it was coming back and the referees uh, kept it on the board and gave TFC a, a 2-1 lead going into halftime. So Jake, give us your thoughts on that uh, second TFC hey. goal. I, I want to be very, very clear. I'm going to start this off by saying the following statement. The ruling from the, the refereeing crew today on the field that uh, Antonio De La Mea uh, purposefully or intentionally played that ball at rules as interpreted is not wrong. The, the ruling on the field as, as called by the officials today is technically correct. The, the problem with that interpretation and some of of the others, the last, particularly the last four or five years with the offside law, is it leads to too many of these situations. The offside law as written and as intended is there to protect the defense. Antonio De La Mea does not know there's a gentleman six yards behind him offsides. What he's trying to do is defend the entry ball. And by doing so, he stuck out his leg. As far as I'm concerned, that is not deliberately playing a ball. That is attempting a block. That is not you have possession of the ball and are deliberately trying to pass it to a teammate, and the defender in an offside position steals that ball and walks into a goal. That's what that interpretation for deliberately playing the ball is supposed to mean. That's the rule as intended. The rule as written leads us to this situation Um, and there's pretty much the general consensus online is exactly what we just have. We have a rule as written that is a disaster and is called on the field as written, while the intention is not so much. Yeah, and and I was watching the ESPN Plus uh, TFC broadcast, and they were outraged that it was going to stand. I mean, they were besides themselves, and normally when the, the team, I mean, those broadcasters, they aren't exactly unbiased, uh, so the fact that they were more or less uh, outraged that 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 goal stood was kind of surprising. But um, it makes you wonder, too, if we're going to see a strategy in the future where coaches are going to have players keep player keep their forwards in an offsides position and hope that that players go for the ball or just clearly nick the ball, you know, slightly touch the ball. If that if that's what's going to be called, I feel like this ruling might be exploited. 
Um, I mean, maybe that's just me. I'm not a great soccer mind at all. But um, Sean, I, I, what are your thoughts on uh, that second goal? Yeah, the, the the one thing I'll say here is, and it brings me back to that goal that the Revolution scored last year, where where Bunsbury was standing, you know, ten feet off sides and, mm-hmm. and and put it away. And um, you know, I, on that play at the time, I, I thought it was crazy. And then the more I looked at it, like, well, on this play, you know, Espinosa really was the one that kicked it to Bunbury. I think you know Fagunas was probably going to do that, but Fagunas actually wasn't the one that that kicked it there. So I I got comfortable with the justification behind that goal standing and that not being outside. But on this one, you know, the ball was going to Chapman. Uh, De La Maya deflected it. He was trying to mm-hmm. you know, block it and kick it away, but he didn't change it from going to Chapman. It still went to the same person. It was going to be offsides. Um, the intent was to pass to a guy who was offsides. So you know, he didn't change the intent of the play. And to me, I completely understand what Jake's saying, that you know, that's the letter of the law, um, but the result just feels wrong to me. So it, is the letter is the letter of the law though? If De La Maya plays it whatsoever, he doesn't have to necessarily be playing it backwards. Yeah, that's that's basically the, what the difference here is. Is that uh, the, the play that Sean is referring to is, I believe, the the one zero game against Sporting Kansas City where Espinosa slide tackles the ball and either it either comes it's either Fagundes playing the ball and Espinosa blocks it and it comes to Bunbury or it just the ball, it's a very, very bang-bang kind of sort of play for contact. And I forget who the referee was in that game, but they basically said, okay, look, we're not ruling anything right now. We're going to go upstairs because I need to figure out who played that ball. And if if doesn't matter if who if, if it is Espinosa who played it, then Teal Bunbury's position technically doesn't matter. And it, the problem that I also had with Echo was is that I think that in general, T, uh, that Diego was eventually trying to pass the ball somewhere. Now, whether it was Teal Bunbury, or I'm sorry, whether it was Diego Fagundes in Kansas against Kansas City who played the ball first and Espinosa blocked it, to me, the, the same interpretation should still apply. Teal Bunbury still in an offside position, un, unless you're making, to me, a deliberate play with your team in possession. That should really be the modifier that's added here. Your team has to have the ball, and yeah. you have to make a deliberate play. So that way that if you make one of these deflection things, it's still, hey, the ball has ricocheted, and you're in an offside position. You're still gaining an advantage. That's the original intent of the law, and really the way the law has been written and interpreted and used for probably the last couple of decades. Um, you know, every every change we've made to the offside law the last 20 or 30 years has been geared toward aiding the offense when the rule is there to protect the defense. And so now we're getting into the territory of, okay, we're going to let – play continue until the player touches the ball. We're going to let play continue, even if there's a guy in an offside position, not affecting the play. That's another one that's still we're figuring out. Now we have these situations where a guy in an offside position is getting a ball that didn't come from a teammate, but it's still in an offside position, and we're having these types of problems. And instead of figuring out and making the changes for what I think the offside law rule is intended, you still should not be getting the ball in an offside position under pretty much any circumstances except deliberate stupidity from the defense. And we're seeing these types of goals happen and it's becoming more and more common. And it's not a problem with the players or not playing to the whistle or anything like that. It's a problem with the rule. The rule is the problem here. Not the people who are officiating it, not the people who are looking at video replay and, and reviewing it. It's the actual rule as written and, and being taught to the referees at the international level. And until that gets fixed, and these situations are corrected in clinics and high level play and everything else, we're going to continue to see this happen. Yeah. 
another game uh, another controversial rule uh <laughs> that's uh i don't know it's it's very mls at this point it seems like we have one or two of these a year where i don't know it, it seems pretty clear cut and I'm not sure. Another thing, too, that's worth noting is that the linesman had their offside flag up. Yes, he did. Uh, and, and you could kind of see that. It, I, I don't think Mancien stopped playing, but you could kind of see De La Mea expecting a whistle because it seemed like a very obvious offside play. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it, there's always one or two of these a year, uh, and it always seems to uh, backfire on the revs, and it certainly did tonight. So unfortunate. But there's a lot we there's a lot of other things that happened in this game that we can complain about. We don't want to spend too much time on this one play because we have a lot of them to complain about. So uh, let's get into our kind of key takeaways from this match. Uh, Sean, um, what is your key takeaway? Uh, what kind of stood out to you in this uh, match tonight? My key takeaway was that Teal Bunbury can be the most dangerous player on the field. I think we saw him, you know, playing more of that right wing role at the beginning of last week's game and, you know, wasn't particularly effective. But um, he looked really good in this game up top as in kind of a two striker formation. Um, Fagundes didn't get involved enough, but but Bunbury kind of in that that free role on the as a right striker. Every time he got the ball, he looked dangerous. He created that penalty kick. He had other chances. He created that shot that just went just high. Um, and I think, you know, after last week and, um, after you know, sort of his play at the end of last season, I uh, was kind of ready to write him off. But you know, he's been—he was fantastic in this game, and it, it kind of shows you what he's capable of doing when he has another strike partner next to him and kind of has that that freedom more to be a forward, but also not necessarily to be the the focal point as the lone striker. Um, so he was one guy that that really impressed me in this game. If I'm going to look at something positive. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, as we're going to talk about more, I think the, the, the exact same problems with the defense that we keep talking about, you know, rear their ugly heads in this one. But I, I'll save that for later. Yeah, I felt Teal had a really, really strong game. And, you know, we've kind of been giving him a lot of crap uh, these these past few weeks. But um, he obviously had a really, really nice touch in that. Uh, I, I don't know when they scored. I think it was the fourth or fifth minute of the game. Uh, and he, then he drew the penalty, which I felt yeah. could have been a red card. We can get into that one later, but um, Teal yeah, had a number of plays. He had a, he had a really nice shot uh, off the crossbar around the 20th minute. Um, he kind of faded towards the end of the game, but um, you know he, he clearly fits Friedel's high press system, and they clearly like the things that he can do defensively. And um, you know he he kind of showed off what he can do offensively too. So um, really really strong, encouraging performance from Teal. Um, really nice to see him kind of break out in the third game. So yeah, positive marks for me as well. Jake, what do you think of uh, Teal tonight? Oh, I love the first half. I thought Teal by far just dangerous. Just getting him out the ball in space on the right-hand side has been staggeringly effective the, the past couple of weeks. And you you also miss from Teal because he doesn't. You, you don't notice it so often. His hold-up play is fantastic. I think of all the fouls TFC did today, most of them were on Teal. I think it was seven fouls total. Four of them were were suffered by Teal. So. Yeah, not three of them I think were on Mavinga alone. I, uh-huh. I think Mavinga had three, or because because I was waiting for Mavinga to get a yellow, and it never came. I, Very I think he was close. To- I I think that I think Mavinga they credited one of the fouls officially to someone else in in entanglement. Um, but yeah, I mean just just all day down that side, getting around Mavinga with some really fancy um, maneuvering, particularly the one um, for the penalty. Um, and, and that's just something where you, you want to be able to get Teal in more positions like that. And unfortunately, just it, sometimes he's just so isolated for other various reasons that y- you want to force feed him the ball. But a lot of times, even back to goal, he can still be effective, but you still have to get the ball up there. And and that's been a problem for New England, uh, even the last uh, the first two games with uh, Aguidelo up top. Just a matter of getting the ball up top to the striker to let them 
maneuver and create from that spot. And most of the time, you know, the way that New England is set up, it's difficult to get them the ball in the final third and have that position be effective. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, moving on. So, Jake, uh, what was your key takeaway from tonight? Um, my key outside of the outside of the refereeing. No, out, out, outside <laughs> of refereeing. My key takeaway is I, I, I don't understand um, the, the three holding midfield line. I, I, I'm very confused as to why we needed all three of Caicedo, Zahibo, and, and Caldwell in a lineup because it seemed very, very odd. It seemed like Caicedo spent most of his time at left back. I saw Gill spending a lot of time at right back. There was no transition. Again, you know, Gill getting the ball almost at his box, and he doesn't have any options. You've got three holding midfielders in front of you, in theory, and none of them are available for a pass. And so I'm waiting to see this transition New England offense, and the only transition work I see is just dumping it long to Teal, which, while effective, is very, very root one. And I didn't see a lot of the breakout play Today, some of that is you have to credit Toronto for pinning the revs in, but also New England unable again to break out and you know use long diagonals or quick passing to move up the field quickly and get out on the run. It seemed like every time New England got out into space, there's either no support or there's no one able to run forward, and, and that became a, a constant problem um, for me pretty much after about the 15th minute. You know, New England goes up one nil, and then just always pinned back and there it needs to be better in that aspect um, to not only relieve pressure on the defense, but also to create chances in the, in the final third. Well, and the one play, the, the one time kind of one of those long balls have worked through three games till Bunbury needed, you know, the touch of God to get around yeah. the defender. You know, uh, it seems like they are relying a lot on this long ball strategy. They're, they're kind of putting Teal on the right. It looked like T Diego tonight was kind of on the left and the Gill was somewhere in the center. If he wasn't, playing defense uh and they just kick it down the flanks and, and hope teal or diego mostly teal could outrun their defenders and most of the time they can't so um there was one point where i don't know if you remember this brad knighton collected a ball he punted it downfield and there was just no one down there yeah so they're, they're really relying heavily on long balls and i don't think this team is fast enough to do that but they aren't getting support up the field long enough and and they're very fluid and all over the field like you said I'm there isn't I, I'm not entirely sure what they're going for. And I don't know if it's going to click at a certain point, but there's really not a whole lot of structure to this team right now. And maybe, you know, we're talking about the three holding uh, midfielders. Maybe they wanted to go with more of a defensive lineup tonight. They're on the road against Toronto. I, I know they did it a couple times last year. I think uh, someone mentioned pregame that they did this last year going to Philadelphia and they lost one to nothing. Um, so I, I think it might have been a situational game where they put three holding midfielders in, hoping that that might add a little bit more defensively, but um, it obviously did not. So um, I, I'm not sure if we'll see this again. And then the other thing, too, that Sean actually pointed out on Twitter was that there's no real defensive subs available in the game. Every sub on the bench outside of Annie Baba and Andrew Farrell was an and, offensive and could player. Could Andrew Farrell actually have played in this game? Like, I, I, based on what we've heard of how little he's been training. <laughs> I mean, uh, Jeff Lemieux said that he was cleared by his doctors, and and you know, I, 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 it sounds like he's still doing his fitness throughout. So maybe they they added him, they, they kept him available just in case. Uh, but I mean, 
they, they clearly were testing out that right side of the defense and Brandon by all night, and they never went to Andrew Farrell. So I, I'd imagine they did not want to play him. So there, and I think that's another reason why we didn't see any subs late in the game. I, I don't think uh, Redfield wanted to make two offensive subs, but he didn't have anyone to take over in the midfield defensively. So they, they kind of pegged themselves uh, behind the eight ball a little bit strategically late in the game. Um, Sean, w- what are your thoughts about uh, the three holding midfielders and the Revs tactics so far? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get it when they started with that lineup for sure. Um, you know, what I did see today was, you know, Caicedo um, was very much covering for Edgar Castillo. We, you know, something we've talked about is Edgar Castillo pushes forward, and I think Bradfield tells him to do that, and Brandon Bay does it too. Um, and Castillo, a, a lot of times today, was back there, um, except on a couple of key times he wasn't, but was back there a lot to, to cover for Castillo, and even from that position had a couple of nice long balls forward, including that Teal Bunbury shot that either hit the crossbar or went just high. Um, but, you know, I don't get why you would play Zahibo, Caicedo, and Caldwell together. I just, I don't, doesn't make sense to me unless you're really just trying to play for a draw and, and, and hold on. Um, it works better in this game than I thought it did, that, than I thought it would. I thought they did a decent job of, you know, quieting Michael Bradley, um, for a good chunk of the game. And again, <laughs> a couple of times when it really mattered, they didn't. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think long term that that's a good winning strategy for the Revolution to, to play those three guys. And I do think it isolates, you know, guys too much. And it's crazy even when you have that many guys that Heel was having to come back as far as he was to get the ball while Caldwell, Caicedo, and um, Zahiba were all out there. There were times when, when Caldwell was far more forward than, than Heel was, and I, I don't really understand what the what the thought process or the thinking is there. I think if the Revolution are that concerned with, you know, their fullbacks pushing forward so much, then maybe they'd be better off if, you know, Brandon Bay stayed at home more and they pinched in when, when Castillo went forward because I don't think Brandon Bay offers that much offensively anyways. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't really understand the tactics that work better than I thought it would, um, but I don't think there's, you know, a long-term plan to, to do that a lot, or at least I don't think that's going to be successful if the plan is to play that a lot more going forward. Yeah, and, and on the third goal, uh, Carlos Gill was the outside of the center backs. He was the furthest one back to defend, which says a lot about yeah. this kind of mess, I, I would call it. So I, I get overlapping, but what is, you know, is Brandon Bay actually offering enough going forward to, to justify having to keep a guy like, like Carlos Heel back in that situation? Well, and you wonder, too, when Andrew Farrell goes back in the lineup, are we going to see that same overlap? I would guess no, but I, I'm not yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think with the, with the rotation you have is, okay, you've, you've got the three midfielders, which is fine. Castillo going forward, it, it, it kind of sort of creates at least something that resembles a left winger. It just it just seemed like a very odd formation from, from a variety of reasons. You're handcuffing yourselves with, sub, with subs late in the game. You never really were able to get Castillo involved in the game because he ends up being the outlet pass more often than not because the three midfielders are nowhere to be found in the middle. So it it seemed like a not necessarily a bad idea to start out with. Like I don't have a problem with Luis Caicedo in particular being, you know, you want to play all three guys, that's fine. But Luis Caicedo should be then playing like a weird, like box to box right sided player, not covering it left back all the time for Castillo. It, you know, we can complain all the time about, well, you know, the fullbacks are too high, they're getting beat, they're not supporting the center backs. You know, that's fine. At some point you have to figure out a way how to get the ball back upfield without sending the fullbacks 40 yards up. I absolutely agree. And um, another thing that I want to touch on, and, and my key takeaway uh, is, and, and we're talking a little bit about the strategy and the tactics, I want to go into the starting lineup. Uh, and one name we have not mentioned so far is Christian Pena, 
who for the first yeah. time in his revolution career did not start uh, the game. I think this is a Blast bit premature. I, I, you know, it is, it is. I, I understand that he didn't have the best game last week. He still wasn't useless last week. He still wasn't, you know, absolutely horrible. We've seen worse performances. He had an off night last week. Maybe there's something going on in training. I get that. But we talked going into the season that Christian Pania was the most solid player on the team. And two weeks in, you're benching him. I don't know if it was tactical, but I, I don't think Christian Pania can be starting games on the bench, especially if you're not going to bring him in in the 60th minute. If you're going to bring him in in the 85th minute, um, it's a total waste. So I, I don't know what you guys feel, but I, I think it's a total overreaction to bench Christian Pania. And I hope this is just a disciplinary one-week thing because I think he's too dangerous of a player to keep on the bench. Yeah, you could you could maybe get away with, with having Pania not play a game if Diego Fagundes actually accomplishes anything on the left-hand side, or if Edgar Castillo actually accomplishes anything on the left-hand side. Um, you know, it was a wasteland today up front, and, and you have to wonder how much Pania could have helped, I think, particularly in the second half. Um, I'm not a big fan of subbing in the final 10 minutes anyway, even if you're just trying to waste time. Five minutes is not enough to affect a game, like, at all. To me, the last sub you should make at, at the latest would be the 80th minute. And if you're saying, like, oh, I don't want someone to get hurt or I might have to pull someone off, if you're thinking about doing it in the 85th, do it in the 80th. There's no reason to hold the sub that long. Uh, you don't give anyone enough time to affect the game. Diego did not need 70 minutes today. He was bad. Get Diego off far sooner than that. I would say even if the earliest, the hour mark, probably closer to the 55th minute. Get Penny in there. See what he can do to affect the game. For a, a gentleman who loves to sub at halftime, as, as uh, our wonderful friend Seth McKilmer uh, found out and researched uh, earlier in the week, I was very surprised to not see a sub, if not Diego at halftime, at least, you know, Pania on at the half hour mark. Uh, and then for the first sub, it wasn't even that. It was it was taking someone weird off. Yeah, the, the, fir- the first sub was Fagundes off for Aguadelo. Right. I was like, well, why is Aguadelo going on? If, he's, if Aguadelo's going on, he should be going on up top, and there should be two strikers coming on and, and that would be a way that you're going for the win. But Josie scores the goal 10 minutes later. And now it's like, well, you've already used your offensive sub. Now you're just going to throw everyone on and it's five minutes till time. So I don't know. I, I'll never understand why uh, Zahibo gets to play 90 minutes every week with a yellow card and, until he's going to sit probably week six, because he'll have five yellow cards in five games for a suspension. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah, I don't know. It, a lot of things bug me about this. You know, there's there's a lot more positives this week, but there's still the same little wrinkles we've been talking about the past uh, two, three weeks for this team. No, I'm with you completely. And to me, Pania is still the most dangerous offensive player the Revolution has oh until he'll prove otherwise. And I don't think he'll yet proven otherwise, despite the fact he scored two goals today. Yeah. Um, Pania, you know, has, as I tweeted out a few times this week, Pania scored three goals against Toronto in his career. Um, the Revolution had four goals against Toronto last year. Pania had three of them. Um, so obviously he, you know, has had success against Toronto's defense. Uh, it, it seems to me that, you know, when you have a guy like that, that's a dangerous offensive weapon going against a team he's had success against, you know, you put him out there from the start of the game. Um, I agree that, you know, Pania didn't have his best game last week. I don't think he had his best game week one either. Um, but he's still a dangerous player. He, you know, in that first half last week, um, he still created, I think, you know, the Revs only shot on target. 
Um, you know, it, and, and overall, the offense was really going through him. And yes, the offense was going too slow. But, it, you know, I'm not sure it was his fault as much as it was Heel's fault, as much as it was the fact that the, the right-hand side of the field wasn't threatening enough. Um, so I do think it was very harsh to, to bench him for 83 minutes in this game, um, you know, based on, on that performance. Uh, you know, and maybe you could argue it was the tactical decision to play the, you know, the, the three you know, center midfielders in this one that, that made it necessary to, to bench Pania. I think you still could have found a way to get him on the field. Um, you know, he's a guy that is very creative and, and does a lot for this team. So to leave him out um, was shocking to me and uh, was a bit of an overreaction from, from Friedel. And, you know, on that note, when you talk about the subs, uh, I think we talked last week about how, you know, Friedel perhaps overreacted and subbing out two guys at halftime. Um, in this game, I would agree. I think he, you know, waited too long to react until the revolution fell behind to to bring on a guy like Pania that, um, you know, as we know, can offer so much to this team's offense. Um, I, I also agree that I don't think Aguadelo's done much this season. I thought he actually was okay this game as a sub. Um, but overall, I, w- I would certainly think you'd want to bring Pania on over Aguadelo, especially um, at that time of the game when the, you know, the game was still tied at 2-2, two to two, and Pania is, you know, not necessarily an out-and-out striker, but a guy that creates stuff on his own. It just would have made more sense to me to have brought him on at that point. Um, but, you know, once again, he should have been starting, not even in that position. Yeah, and, and you know, I kind of get the reasoning for Brad Friedel holding off on his subs. and I, I think he didn't want to take off anyone in the midfield, and really the only player he could have taken off was maybe Teal or Diego, but... Again, that's kind of a fault in starting all of your holding midfielders, you know, all, all at the start of the game. So, um, yeah, kind of a, I don't know, not not a huge fan of, of the way Brad Friedel has been organizing the lineup lately. And I, I do want to kind of touch upon Diego Fagundes' night because we've kind of advocated for him to get back in the starting lineup. And he really did a whole lot of nothing. Uh, according to uh, who, uh, uh, Stat Zone, uh, Diego's night was zero shots, eight for ten passing. Uh, one chance created, one tackle, one clearance. Um, not a whole lot to rave about there. Didn't have a whole lot of touches. So, um, And, again, I, I feel like Fagundes is the guy that is taking Pania's spot. So I, I agree with you, Sean. I'm not sure why Pania wouldn't just sub in for Diego at that area. But, yeah, really, really, really disappointing night for Fagundes. I, I don't think the role worked for Fagundes. I, I get what they were trying to do, kind of have him play as a second striker. At times he was pushed even further forward than, than Teal Bunbury. Um, and I know we saw some of that in preseason, too, where they were trying to play him there. You know, he's a guy that, that needs to get on the ball. He's not a guy that's going to hold up the ball with his back to goal. Um, he's a player that needs the ball and needs to run at defenses. And, you know, he's not going to get in that position. I think, um, you know, what we were saying in the past was that we'd like to see him out in the wing and have an opportunity to run at guys. And, you know, maybe the right side isn't the best opportunity for him to do that. Um, but you would have thought if Pania was going to go to the bench, it would be for, for Gundes to kind of play the, the Pania role. Um, and I don't think that's you know, what the intent was today. I think he was kind of pushed forward and isolated and, um, you know, he, he didn't turn the ball over much when he got the ball, but he didn't get the ball very much. And I don't know, it just, it just struck me as it wasn't the best role for him to play. And I don't think he had a very good game, but I think some of that gets chalked up to him kind of being in an unfamiliar role as a really a, a true second striker. Um, and, and sometimes even being for, more forward than, than Teal Bunbury. Um, you know, it, to be honest, if you're going to play that strategy, I think you're probably better off with, you know, Agudelo or, Caicedo number two in that role next to Till Bunbury rather than Fagundes, um, who I still think is more suited to be a bit further back from going in a position where he can run at guys. Yeah, I actually like where, where Sean's going with that. Uh, John, what were you, what do you, Greg? What do you say the um the, the passing numbers were for Diego? Diego, Diego was eight for ten, and they're all short passes. 
I think they're all short passes, and I think he's got two of them from the kickoff spot. So those were two of his completed passes. We're going backwards to one of the defenders off off the kickoff restarts, um, at least according at least according to the chalkboard that I'm looking at right here. So I I, I don't know. Um, yeah, this is not the first time we've we've seen and said someone's isolated. It, you know, Teal seems isolated up top. Uh, Juan seems isolated up top. Today, the everything that went down the left hand side just seemed isolated. Whether it was Teal, whether it was Diego, whether it was um, Gill cutting across on the dribble, there just didn't seem to be any connection that New England could build up. And, and, and again, I don't know if this is a, a breakdown in the formation, having the different midfielders out there. It, it just seemed awkward from from start to finish. Some of the roles people were playing. And I think Diego is, is the, the, the grand microcosm because we know what he's capable of doing. And we've seen him in good positions. And today he was just ineffective. And it wasn't that he didn't have chances on the ball. It's that they literally couldn't get him the ball. And that's a, a bigger problem and not the first time or last time this year we're going to say that. Yep. Um, the only other person I really want to touch upon today was Hebo. And we, we kind of touched on this earlier because he was the last uh, holding midfielder standing uh, after the last minute subs to get all the offensive players on. Um, I didn't think he was particularly good today. Um, he he kind of bears some responsibility for that first goal where um, I, I forget who scored the first goal, but he walked right around him and De La Mea. Um, he fouled a guy barely outside of the box, which almost led to a penalty kick. Um, he seems a little bit behind the play, which is not very good for a player that's kind of supposed to sit in the defensive midfield and not attack, uh, not go forward very much and not attack very much. So, um, anyone know why we're still playing Wilfred Zahibo? And it should be it should be noted that he did get his weekly yellow card. So that is a streak that is still intact, the Zahibo uh, yellow card. But any idea what exactly is keeping Zahibo in the starting lineup? <laughs> How much All money right, he's getting advance. paid? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> no, no, I thought I, I thought his passing, you know, on Bunbury was cool, was, was great. Um, the one thing he offers for this team is a, a target on set pieces. Um, but overall, no, I think with Caicedo fully fit, um, you know, I do think we're going to see him play less, and I don't think he had a good game defensively. Um, but if you're going to blame somebody for a couple of the goals, I think De La Mayo, you know, had a rough night too. Yeah, the biggest thing for me is New England needs someone from that from that holding midfield spot to do very, very well passing going forward. And we've seen week in, week out, Zahib was not that player. He wasn't again today. You know, he, he offers a decent amount defensively. He, he covers a lot, but at the same time, there are just a lot of times where, you know, it's, it, um, it's Ayo um, Aquino who, who walks in uh, in the 14th minute and, and scores that, that, that goal. And you're just looking at it going, it's like, there's four different people who should be stepping up to him. And the only one who does completely olays it. Uh, and that's De La Mea. So, you know, again, I look at so many of these goals and just go, this is a team breakdown, but so many of the constants are always there. There's no pressure in the holding midfielder. No one from the defense steps up or communicates where everyone should be. They all sort of just stare at it and wait and watch bad things happen. Um, I don't necessarily think that, you know, Luis Caicedo and Scotty Caldwell as a two-man holding group are going to necessarily improve anything significantly. Um, you know, but I also think that, you know, at some point New England does need a destroyer off the bench, and Zahibo can certainly fill that role, and I don't have a problem with him getting a yellow card every 30 minutes. He does that anyway. Um, but then, you know, he sort of loses a little bit of that bite because now he's got to play nice and, and – worry about that second yellow um 
so I don't know. I, I, I think it was nice to see all three of them on the field, but now we're realizing that all three of them on the field mechanically in the system doesn't work. So you, again, revolution need to find a, a balance between their attack and the possession based things that they want to do. And, and we're still seeing regardless of the combinations, the tactics are not working. And it should be noted, I don't mean to let the defense off the hook. I know we we talked last week about how they were holding up pretty well, and we, we kind of were impressed that they were able to hold Columbus to a single goal until the very, very end. Um, it seemed to completely backfire this week. Um, obviously, De La Mea did not have the best game. Um, Toronto seemed to really, really attack that uh, left flank. They really seemed to go at Brandon By, which we kind of talked about a couple weeks ago, how we were kind of surprised that they... Uh, weren't I think Dallas I, I kind of mentioned that they were kind of exploiting the left side where Castillo was and they weren't really going at Brandon by um, Justin Morrow seemed to re- really take advantage of Brandon by and get some dangerous crosses in um, from that right side in this game so overall I, I think clearly the defense's poorest performance um, of the season by far and um, yeah kind of more of the same which we saw last year so uh, certainly the back four do not get a uh, passing grade either for me today. So I don't know can if you guys I, have I, any thoughts on the defense. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I just want to say as bad as the defense was as a U.S. national team fan, I was very excited to see Akinola completely tear through them over and over again in this yeah. game. That is one dangerous looking 19 year old who has not officially committed to playing for the U.S., but hopefully will because that the performance from him, which I think was his first MLS start, um, was, was pretty incredible. And to see that level of confidence, you know, running at, a defense, albeit you know, the Revolution defense is known for uh, not being the best at, at stopping guys like that. Um, but to see him run at the Revolution defense with that level of confidence and, and that level of success, um, for as bad as it made the Revolution defense look and as many holes as, it made, as the, the Revolution defense revealed itself to have, um, as a fan of the, the U.S. national team that wants to see them succeed, um, it's very exciting to see a 19-year-old player uh, have that level of success and look that confident going at a Revolution defense. Yeah, I, I mean, Akinola, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think he got fouled about four or five times in this one. He completed two dribbles basically in zone 14 right at the top of the box. Uh, he scored one. He might have actually set up one. Um, but I, I'm getting my assists confused because of the deflection that technically was Mayo's assist. Um, no, I, I completely agree. That was that was a, a very wonderful performance from from a young player. Um, and, and Toronto, see, again, they, they deserve credit here because – New England doesn't adjust to making the same mistakes. They just watch and see, and the same mistake will happen over and over again. And today, Toronto had to push that because of the game state, because of the scoreline. Whereas last week, Columbus just sat back and just waited for New England to do something. And New England never did anything. So they just said, all right, well, in the 96th minute with two seconds left, we'll score the second goal to ice it. Here, Toronto kept pushing, kept pushing, kept pushing. And eventually you see, ah, here's our breakdown. Here's no one tracking Josie freaking Altador at the back post 10 minutes from time. Let me rephrase that statement. Josie bleeping Altador uncovered back post. He was either going to score or he was going to blow out his hamstring. How <laughs> do you lose track of that? I, oh, God. Said I wasn't going to get angry. Uh, but to be fair... To be fair, though, I mean, there, there, it was an odd man rush. I mean, Brandon yes. By wasn't back there. It was a really great ball over the top, and, and no, it's. It, I mean, yeah. Mancian, it was either near post or far post, and I don't. I think right. that's kind of pick your poison. It's 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 a twofold problem, and I, I was mentioning this on Twitter. You you end up with again, not for the first time. If you watch some of these highlights, 
Carlos Gill ends up at right back on a couple of these goals. That's a problem. That's your that's your attacking midfielder who's now at the right back spot. In case you want to know how bad the revolution tactics and, and, and everything is right now, Carlos Gill ends up defending the ball in space, which is not a great place for him to be. De La Mea decides, I don't know why, to go and help him, never looks around, ends up marking no one. That leaves Mancien with two guys in the box. He has to pretty much at this point go near post, as much as I don't love that, as opposed to turning around, realizing where Josie freaking Altidore is, and yelling to Delamay to cover the guy behind him, and everyone just takes the back shoulder. Yep. No, no. <laughs> That's the reps. Um, just to kind of uh, put a give you uh, Incola's stats, and I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, but uh, two shots, obviously the, the goal to make it 1-1 in the first half. He was 19 for 22 on passing, and he drew four fouls. So, yeah, pretty good yep. for a 19-year-old. So, uh, And then before we get to Twitter questions, too, uh, I just want to say how awesome was that uh, block shot by Scott Caldwell? Kind of in no, vain now, but nice. He, he might have a 42 speed rating on FIFA. but uh, <laughs> Oh, he does not. No, oh, oh someone didn't listen to it. Someone didn't listen to our episode two weeks ago. <laughs> no. I, I, to be fair, I, I, I have an Xbox One. I have FIFA 19. I have not yet dove into, and I'm not a big stat guy like that, but that is criminally low. I might be able to have 42 speed rating. In, in <laughs> That's what FIFA. I said. That's in, what I said. If you give me like three months, I can probably get to that number. It's probably well, a little lower was- right now. Not to not to rehash the entire conversation, but Sahibo had a speed rating of sixty, I think, or sixty-five. Oh, it was in the sixties. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. now, yeah, we, had a, we were pretty outraged at that. You told me my acceleration was like forty-two, and my overall speed was like sixty. I'd be all right. That seems not unreasonable. I accelerate slower than a car out of a, off the uh, stoplight, but yeah. Can we just talk about that free kick for a second, though? The Revolution had the you know pretty much everyone on the wall. And then they had Castillo off to the left of the wall like to, to charge out if they had a pass there um, instead of the shot. But there were two wide-open Toronto players over to the left. Yeah. This whole free kick, I'm thinking, he's going to pass to one of those guys, right? Because they're wide open. They're wide open, yeah. They were tiptoeing yeah. menacingly over to the goal. They, they, <laughs> they couldn't have made it more obvious. But, did, you know, couldn't you have – I realized that it was great to like, – have Castillo in a position to just charge out at somebody, but couldn't your wall have, you know, someone in your wall have been designated to charge out and you put Castillo over there or somebody else over there? It, it didn't seem to make a, a whole lot of sense to me. And also, not everyone was back in the box. The Revolution still had somebody pushed forward. It, it seems nuts that you have that play when you have two attacking players wide open on the left side of the box. And, you know, thank God for Scotty Caldwell jumping in there to, to block that shot, but <laughs> that was a very predictable play right. by Toronto. There, there were, in theory, zero New England Revolution keeper saves in this one. Only three shots on goal. Naturally, there were three goals. Uh, I demand that Scotty Caldwell get an adjustment in MLS Fantasy and be credited with a save. Who do I, totally who do I, petition, who do I petition for that? Probably opera. Probably the same guy who got a petition for fee for ratings. So. Ah, damn it. They're all in the same office. Um. Let's head over to Twitter questions. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> reactions to this one. Uh, not a great game. Uh, first, uh, we'll, we'll go to Randy. Uh, this is kind of a depressing one. Uh, we're going to start <laughs> on a bit of a downer. Um, we constantly looked reactionary, never really dictated the flow of the game. One of the goals we gave up was fluky, but the other two were bad defending mm-hmm. uh, of the goals we got. One was a penalty. The other was basically an own goal, uh, which is obviously the uh, deflection. Um mm-hmm. Where is the hope for us this season? If if you look at 
the three expected goal maps for New England this year, and this is just a ballpark number. If you take away the two penalties that New England has attempted, remember they've only converted one of them, if you take those penalties away, New England is right now averaging per game about one half of an expected goal. And and that's it. And now if you were to tell me, okay, one game that's kind of sort of, you know, an accident. It's a bad day. You're playing a good team. Not the end of the world. Two games. Uh, problem. Three games. Okay, I'm seeing a trend here. Now, if we get the same offensive output against Cincinnati next week, who I might want to point out, pasted Portland 3-0 today. Now we're going to start going and saying, okay, it's not a player problem. It's not a formation problem. It's a tactics problem. Uh, four games is a habit, and New England right now has a habit of not being able to create uh, chances, though I'd like to think that the Teal Bunbury chance would have been a pretty decent one had he not been uh, fouled by Mavinga going into the box. But um, the hope is, is that at times last year, you could see New England was putting up numbers, or even a couple of years ago, it's like, New England's just not scoring. New England's doing everything right except finishing. Right now, they're doing nothing to get to the problem of we can't finish. They're actually at the, we even can't even get near the, you know, 18 to create chances to miss. Uh, so right now, as far as hope, they have to hope that they come out and do at least something to beat Cincinnati next week because one point in March is not going to be a good start to this year. A depressing answer to a depressing question. <laughs> Sean. I think, I think the hope is that a, uh, another DP is allegedly coming in May or July. Uh, but, but no, the, the, the hope is that you've seen Carlos Heel score three goals in three games, even if there was some luck involved. Um, you know, the other hope to me is that we still haven't seen uh, Fagundes, Pania, and Heel start a game together. And I do think those are still your three most you know, creative attacking guys that are capable of, you know, all three of them are capable of creating a shot on their own. Um, so, you know, at some point I'd, I'd like to see Brad Friedel find a way to get all three of those guys out in the field in positions that work for them. Um, and we still haven't seen that. Um, and, you know, of course we still haven't seen Caicedo for more than seven minutes. So if he can, you know, be a finisher and you know, have those three guys out there and then, you know, add Teal Bunbury to the mix, um, there's still a reason to have some hope for the offense, even though as, as Jake points out, they really haven't created much. Um, and that is certainly a worrying sign. And it is certainly a worrying sign that the, the defense has been as bad as it has. And the one other thing I'll say to, to Jake's points about expected goals, and I think it's completely valid to discount um, the penalty kick that they had in the last game because that was you know just lazy defending and more of a given to them than earned by, by the crew defense. Um, in this game, I will say Bunbury did a lot to earn that penalty kick, and it was well-deserved. And it was a bad tackle, um, but that was already going to be a good chance, you know, if that tackle hadn't been committed. So at least, at least on this penalty kick, I'll give them some credit for creating a chance. But regardless of any of that, as you know, Jake points out, they have not been creating enough chances. And to me, the only hope is that if you get those three guys in the field at the same time and find a way to put them on the same page, um, that, you know, maybe that changes, but you know, Brad Friedel hasn't been willing to do that yet. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of just follow up with you there. We haven't seen our healthy starting 11 out there. We haven't seen our second DP yet. If we can weather the storm and get to the middle of the year, still in the playoff position, you know, a winning streak puts us in the playoffs. So it's still only three games. And I think we're missing a really, really huge part of the team right now. And that is the GOAT, Matt Turner, has not played a single minute of Revolution Soccer. I think once he gets back in the lineup, it's going to be blank sheets every game. And you just need one 
goal from Gil. That's it. Hashtag free Matt Turner. I mean, <laughs> it's three points every game. That's all you need. Brilliant. I mean, play, just, just play those two guys. I, I, I don't know why you're not coaching. Score one goal a game and just put Matt Turner in goal. He'll stop everything. <laughs> so I, I, I figured it out. I will, I will request, did anyone ask the question or complain? Because I know I saw Twitter stuff on it. Did anyone complain or have questions about the lack of a yellow on Mavinga from, uh, that, from that penalty? No one has asked specifically about that, but I tweeted out something that that was the more egregious call. Because that is, I don't know how it's not even a red. How is that not a red? It's, it's not a red because it's not a denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. And, and in my opinion, go, referee hat now back on. I don't think that challenge exceeded something that was like reckless or endangering the safety of an opponent. It was a bad tackle. It was from behind. And it was, it was like a hook tackle. It's not like he went through the player. He just dumped his leg in front of Teal at a very, very bad attempt to get the ball. Um, in my opinion, it should have been a yellow. Uh, it should have been a yellow because it was careless. I don't think it bordered over excessive force or, or anything that was bad. But there was a lot of cover in the box. Really, all you're doing is denying Teal a shot. You're not denying him a clear goal or a clear pass attempt or anything like that. He's still, at best, one-on-one with the keeper in a very keeper-friendly tight angle with help in the middle of the box. So I don't think it's a true goal-scoring opportunity. It is just a really, really dumb decision in the box, but not a uh, not an egregiously stupid one. He didn't get close to the ball. No, uh, every it, replay I saw looked worse than the last one. A couple times I saw the replay and just went, I think he actually wanted to try and hook tackle from the other side and change his mind halfway through. Because he does a little stutter step and then throws himself forward. I'm just like, there's no way that this ends well for you, Mr. Mavinga. Why are you even attempting this? Because it, I'm looking at like the play is covered. You've got two got two guys coming back. You've got a very friendly angle on goal. Let it go. There's there's no reason to make that attempt, in my opinion. I don't think Teal does anything except maybe at best he probably goes to near post and forces a corner kick. And I think is the best case scenario for the Rebs in that case. The second best option and probably would have occurred would have probably been a pass back into the middle, and then you got to see if it's Diego or Gil, whoever cutting into the middle and and finishing. So I I don't know. I don't I don't think it was it was a, a, a horrendously bad call, but I also don't think it was it was a play that the Revolution are like. Oh my God, they're going to score here. It was really, really nice, but a nice move from Teal. But it's not something where I look at that and go, no, 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 that that's red. Revolution should be playing about 80 minutes here with with a man up. I'm just like, no, 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 that should be a yellow card to PK. And we move on. And I'm waiting for the yellow card. I'm still waiting for the yellow card. We'll probably have to mention that again at some point this week. I, I thought I missed it. I, I I honestly did not realize he didn't get a yellow card because I just figured I looked away when it was given and. I know it was when Mavinga made his a uh, second or third foul, which looked a little ugly. I thought I was like, "Oh, he's playing on a yellow." Yeah. I was like, "Oh, he's not playing on a yellow." How was that? There were a couple times where I'm looking, I'm like, "People keep thinking Mavinga has like four fouls." I'm like, I'm looking at the box score. It says he's only got two. I know there was one that was kind of sort of played at advantage, so maybe that one didn't count. But um, no, yeah, I mean that that, that foul's worthy of a yellow card. Ten minutes might be a little bit early. Maybe that's one of the reasons why. Uncle thinks I don't really want to get involved in that right now, but uh, you know, in a vacuum, that I think should be a pretty standard yellow card. What was a yellow card and what wasn't a yellow card was uh, very interesting in this game. So mm, yes, uh, we did get a question about Shannon about uh, the breakdown of the offside rule, which we did cover. So we'll kind of move on to another aspect of that, uh, go back, that goal. Go back, minute, go back to minute five. <laughs> uh, what was your guys' thoughts on Gill's VAR goal celebration? Um, and, and I, I just want to point out 
that someone put on Twitter that if you make the VAR motion, that is a yellow. I, and Hill was already on a yellow. So yep. that that is my thoughts. Let me let me let me put <laughs> let me put let me keep my referee hat on for thirty seconds, and I'll move over to Sean, who I think is chuckling in the background. Referee hat says that should be a second yellow card. Referee hat off. Dark side me loved that. I want more of that. If we remember nothing from the tenure of Carlos Gill, however long it is, if it's just this year, however it works, we will remember the VAR celebration in Toronto for all time. Thank you, Carlos Gill. If that is your greatest contribution to any Revs fandom, and I hope it is more than that, I'm pretty okay if it tops off right there because that was absolutely zero chill, and I loved it. I mean, I'm just glad that now I have another GIF to use other than the Will Ferrell one doing the, uh, the VAR. So now we can add that to the, the list. But, um, yeah, I, I, I do think it was very risky to do on a yellow card already. Um, I know as soon as it happened, I had sent a message to, to Jake with, with the <laughs> recent UEFA ruling about how oh, yeah. um, that should be an automatic yellow card. Let um, me rephrase. So, that is something that was in effect last year. That came in yeah. at the beginning of the year for MLS. That might be a new European rule for the 2018-2019 season. That rule was in effect for all of MLS last year. If you start your season in the spring of 2018, that rule was in effect already. So, oh, yes, that to me, that is effectively Carlos Gill knowing at halftime, I'm going to come out and argue balls and strikes with the umpire, and he's going to toss me. Now, the referees don't toss you for dissent. you got to do it twice. But that's basically Carlos Gill going, look, you've already, you know, given me the yellow card for dissent. You're not going to give me a second one because you already know you probably looked at that call on, on the replay board and went, we're probably going to get yelled at for that. Or we, I, should, I, we should get yelled at for that. We're not going to because technically we're correct, but we're going to get yelled at for that at some point. We have to play a little bit nice and, and let Carlos have the, the little moment there. Yeah, now that I know that the Revolution didn't get any any points from this game, I kind of wish he got a second yellow because Brad Friedel <laughs> would have absolutely lost his mind. There, I, I don't know. Did I, I was watching the TFC broadcast. Did you guys were you guys picking up the Brad Friedel hot mic throughout there, that game? There, I I was not listening to the game all that much but every now and again i was watching tweets i wasn't picking it up on my ear because i didn't have the game up like that high in the audio but a lot of the people i know from the tfc side were like wow the bradfield hot mic is awesome <laughs> it was hilarious this there was one <laughs> there was one foul it was after someone someone got clobbered and they didn't call it and then the tfc went down the field it was about in the 40th minute it was before the second goal Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was De La Maya fouls someone kind of up up to the right of the box, like not not in a dangerous position. And right. Brad Friel runs over. I I can't say exactly what he said because uh, we don't have an explicit tag. But he <laughs> says you're this guy's getting clobbered down here, and you're calling that soft bleep right there. And it was clear as day on the on the the broadcast, and the, the announcers are just saying like, well, that's Brad Friedel. He's uh, not very I, I happy. If for anyone who goes back, if you whether have ESPN Plus or whatever it is, you go back and you listen to the TFC broadcast, you will hear. I actually thought it was a very, very solid broadcast for a lot of different reasons. Um, I believe the sideline reporter, Christian Jack, had a, had a great uh, analysis of, of the halftime rule and, and, and everything else for the offsides. Um, they all sort of point out, because, again, we didn't see it on camera. Well, the, the Revolution captain has, I think, gotten a yellow card here as they come out from halftime. Now, I don't know if whatever conversation that got – Gill, his descent card happened on the field, in a tunnel, wherever it was. But I'm fairly certain it was probably a well-earned descent yellow card. And I'm honestly surprised if, if that was the reaction from New England in and out of the tunnel. 
I'm actually surprised that Friedel lasted the second half because that's probably something where you just walk up, you take your Bobby Cox ejection, and you just go home and you know at halftime. They, they I think also it happened on the field that, yeah. after halftime, right? It looked like four it, players it, or three or four players. It probably, the it probably did, and, and whether yeah. or not that that's Gil just taking the card as the captain or or whatever it is, like it, it, it's fine. I don't have a problem with with that aspect of it. Nor do I have any problem with with the, the VAR celebration either. But again, dark dark side of me. That's a, that's um, actually my question for you though, because I do kind of have a problem with that. And it, and Mancian's the captain, not Heel. So if if somebody should be oh, doing it, it, should be should be Mancian. But it, but with Heel, I, I feel like you know. You had a really controversial call right before halftime. You're right to be pissed off. You have 15 minutes at halftime to come out, calm down, get ready for the second half, figure out how you're going to turn things around, and then to have four guys go out and surround the referee after halftime and start arguing with him again um, after yeah. they've had those 15 minutes to figure it out and then get a stupid yellow card. And then, as we talked about, could have gotten that second yellow card for the, the VAR celebration. To me, that's, you know, Friedel needs to calm these guys down at halftime and, and figure that out and get him to move on. But, you know, he'll, even after he got that yellow card, kept arguing. Eventually, he moved away to, to avoid getting tossed. But I, I don't know. I, I know you reacted differently to me to that. But that, to me, you know, wasn't a great sign that Friedel didn't calm those guys down at halftime. That the, Immediately, the first thing they did when they came out for the second half was go find the referee again. Uh, I will say, too, that they mentioned on the TFC uh, broadcast that Brad Friedel apparently said to the sideline reporter, Christian Jack, uh, that if this game was played in England, that referee wouldn't make it to his car. So... <laughs> Brett Friedel was hot all night. <laughs> it, would not, it, would not be, it would not be an incorrect quote. Well, there would be a lot of suspensions if, if that actually didn't happen. But uh, yeah, no, there's. I would not be surprised, and I haven't seen some of the, the post game comments from from Brad seem seem fairly tame from the one or two that I've seen. Uh, do not be surprised if there are mass confrontation uh, warnings and team fines and and all that uh, such type things from uh, today's game uh, addressed from the disco uh, uh, midweek. Yeah, and, and, and we should know we don't have any post-game quotes. I'm sure Brad Friedel is going to be quite animated throughout the week. I, I mean, he was furious. So, um, yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to see uh, what, what awaits. I've got uh, I've only got one Brad Friedel quote so far, and this is on the goal before halftime. This is from Jeff, Jeff Lemieux. Quote, I think if you ask anybody in the game, do you think that was offside, they would all say yes. And we don't agree with the rule and quote. And then so so that's the, the in-game quote. So Brad Friedel is still talking. So why is the rule the way it is? And and that's a very, very fair question. I don't know what the follow up is to that, but there it is. Yep. And Greg Vanny also said as much. He said uh, on the broadcast that he said, yeah. you know, I think that's the, the rule and we'll take it. But I don't like that. I don't think there's anything the defender can no. do. So, you know, that that's I think that's going to be the the consensus when uh, the dust settles. So uh, we do have a question from at Dun 29. Uh, is this the Revs best formation? Uh, Sean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we touched on it earlier and I don't I don't think so. I think um, in games when you're on the road and you're looking to you know come away with a draw, um, I don't necessarily mind it. I think there's a few kinks that the revolution will need to work out on, on how this you know, formation works. If they're going to play it more often, you know, who's going to sit back when Castillo goes forward? Is it going to be Caicedo every time? And who's going to fill in for bye? And you know, should both of them going forward at the same time? All those things. Um, and you know, should he'll be back as far as he was in this game? Um, but you know, with that said, I don't mind this formation on the road um, in certain situations. You know, tactical decisions depending on who you're facing. Um, but I wouldn't want to see the Revolution play this formation at home in games where they should be getting three points. This is to me as a formation you play if you're you know trying to control a, a very 
strong offense or a very good midfield um, and, and grind out a result. Uh, you know, this game obviously was more open than you would expect for this formation, um, but going forward, that would be my expectation for, for what you would do with this. But at home, I don't want to see this formation. Yeah, if it was a, a, a true 4-3-3, and, and again, tactics are, you know, whatever you write on the lineup card, the formation can change. Um, I think I would rather have seen this more play as like a 4-5-1, where you have the actual three holding midfielders, and you sort of figure out a way to have them in a triangle and rotate them around so that you have fluid movement in the midfield, as opposed to what ended up happening, which was your back line still has no support, and in theory you've got three holding midfielders and two wingers, um, and your back line and your balance is still all out of whack. So um, I like the idea. I like the idea of maybe closing with, with a formation like this, either bringing on Teal Bunbury to help close down a flank defensively or just putting someone else up top who's fresher and faster and let Teal just, hey, I got 20 minutes left in me. Let me just, you know, do box-to-box and more defensive stuff. Um, you know, little things like that, I think – the, the, the concept is not terrible, um, but the execution leaves a lot to be desired, as we've said with the Rev standard formation, whether it's 4-2-3-1 or whatever else they've been using the uh, past really like eight months, going back to the midway of last year. Yep, absolutely agree. Um, we have another couple of questions, which I, I also think we've already touched on, so we can kind of skip over them. But Mike Kennedy uh, asked us, where was the breakdown on the Altador goal, which we talked about earlier? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of not enough people back late <sighs> in the game in a tie game. Yeah. Uh, so that there's that, uh, and, and actually Shane asks us, why are they still playing Zahibo? Which I asked, asked before I even he, saw this question. That, yeah. <laughs> uh, we do get have a couple of questions, uh, uh, comments rather from MJ, uh, center back play was brutal offside onside is secondary to De La Mea's ill-advised slide that put him completely out of position and chasing on that, uh, offside scoring play, which actually is a good point. I did notice that De La Mea kind of made a weird awkward slide to get the ball and he kind of lost possession right to Toronto. He, he kind of just kicked it effortlessly into uh, midfield, which, which led to that. So that is actually a fairly good point. Yeah. Um, he, he also says, also, I understand he's taken multiple knocks, but Mancien has been decidedly uneven, especially concerning uh, given position on defense combined with the high salary need more production from him. Um, any other thoughts on the center back pairing today, guys, they, they didn't seem to uh, didn't seem to provide much value. Yeah, and, and in the first half in particular, I thought De La Mayo was poor. Um, his passing wasn't great. Um, I agree on that on that offside play. His his um, initial slide was poor. He had I think he had more time than that, and he you know, slid in and bo- both gave the ball away and put himself out of position. Um, and of course, on that that second goal, where you know he just he just stood. I mean, the first goal I should say where he just stood there and got that ran by by Akinola. Um, that was you know, pretty poor as well. Um, yeah, so overall, and, and, you know, even on the third goal, you could make a case that maybe you should have closed a little bit better on that cross. Um, so I think there's, you know, a lot of blame to go to De La Maya. I didn't think Mancien necessarily had the best game either. Um, you know, for all the, the plaudits they got in maybe the first two games, you know, this wasn't, well, Mancien didn't play in the first game, but in, in the last game anyways, I, I didn't think this was the best performance from the two of them and kind of showed some of the weaknesses that we saw last year. But again, um, they were hung out to dry a lot by the fullbacks being so far forward on some of those goals as well. So it's, it's you know, they were put in a difficult spot, but they perhaps didn't do as, as well as you would have hoped they did. They would. Yep, and uh, one last question. Again, we've kind of talked about Carlos Gill and, and the way he's been playing, um, but Mike Kennedy asked us our thoughts on Gill playing behind Fagundes and Bunbury. Did you guys have any other additional thoughts on that? See, I thought that Carlos Gill in the, the first two games was pushing too far forward 
And then in this game, I thought he was often too far backwards. Um, so I, I don't know what to make of it, but I think there's some sort of happy medium you have to find where I don't think Heel should be dropping back into the right back spot to be you know playing defense or, or picking up the ball. Um, but I also am not sure that he was in the, the best position in the, the first two games either when he was uh, almost playing as a second striker. Um, I think... You know, overall, in general, it's better for him to kind of be playing more as a you know, true number 10 and behind that striker and not pushing up as much as he did in the first two games. Um, but I didn't think what he did in this game was was really the answer either. And again, yes, he scored on that penalty kick. He had another you know half-decent shot that was saved, and he uh, had the other deflected shot that went in for a goal. Um, but I, I still think they haven't used him in his best role and, and found that kind of sweet spot behind the striker where um, he's you know not playing as a striker, but he's also not dropping back as much as he did in this game. Yeah, I mean, like that, that's sort of, I, I think, if you are looking for a positive, is that he, I don't think we are playing Gil very effectively, and he's got three goals. Yes, one of them is a penalty, but it's like, he probably has three goals, and my guess would be he probably has the bulk of the Revs' good chances on goal. Like, the, the, the lousy expected goal totals that New England has, probably most of that was either created from Gil or shot at the net by Gil. Um, and until Barnbury's probably in second, and I don't think anyone else, honestly, should be in third, because that should be the end of the list. Um, but no, Gil, I, I think that's, that is a, a, a scary thought that Carlos Gil is this effective already in the final third um, with his shooting, and we still aren't even getting him in great positions most of the time. Uh, so that is something where if the Revolution do find that balance, and I think that'll come from the rest of the midfield and, and figuring out a, a cohesive way to make that a, a combination. I don't know what combination it is yet. But there's so many options back there. You're bound to find either one of them that works or sub or switch your way into one that works. And then you're going to really start to see some combination of Gil and Diego driving forward on some of those counterattacks and really creating good chances for New England again. And uh, thank you all for your questions, by the way. We really appreciate them. Uh, We're going to move on to just kind of some housekeeping and some news of the week. There are a couple things that we want to touch on. Um, First, I I think most significant and and might lead to the most discussion is uh, the news that Zach Haribo and Brian Wright were loaned to Birmingham. I believe it's a season-long loan, but the Revs have the right to call them up. Um, Guys, what are your thoughts on this loan? Do you guys approve, disapprove? Uh, Obviously, I guess the downside is that they're not training with the first team and it Obviously, we won't see much of them this season, but uh, Sean, I'll start with you. Uh, approve or disapprove of this loan? So I have no problem with it. The one thing that I will say is, you know, Brian Wright is turning 24 soon. Um, there were opportunities, I think, in the, the last game when the Revolution didn't have, or you know, past two games where the Revolution didn't have a striker on the bench. Uh, Caicedo wasn't ready. They started Aguadelo and Teal Bunbury, and you know. At almost 24 years old, you should be pretty close to a finished product as a soccer player. Um, yes, there's still marginal room for improvement. Um, and again, he turns 24 at the end of this month, so he is pretty close. Um, so in, in Brian Wright's case, it's you know I'm wondering why they picked up his option and brought him back for this year when they were signing Caicedo and you know if he was really going to be in a position where he's going to be loaned out for the entire season because you know you bring him back next season and he turns 25 in March um, are you really expecting a season in USL for a guy at that age to make that much of a difference and to a lesser extent you can make the same case with Zachary Haravu who's you know 23 um, and I think I'm not sure when he turns 24 but you know he turns 24 at some point this year too I believe um, and you know he's another guy where I'm not 100% sure well, actually you know he just turned 23 in February, so I'll give him a little bit more of a break. Um, but he's another guy where I'm, you know, I'm not so sure um, that at this point, 
you know, he needs playing time for sure at this point. But, you know, if he's another guy that's going to be on loan all season, um, you know, maybe you maybe he's not going to make it on this team long term. So I don't have a problem with them getting loaned to Birmingham. You know, hopefully they both get minutes there and maybe somebody turns it around and, and you know, proves they belong on this team. But I think both of them are guys that, um, you know, very good chance play in Birmingham all season and are cut in the offseason. So, you know, great for them to get minutes. But I'm not sure that, you know, two guys that are 23 and one that's about to be 24 um, are necessarily the, the best candidates to go to Birmingham all season. Um, you know, maybe a guy like Jones, who's not going to play, would, would benefit more from that and would have more potential upside than, than guys that are, you know, getting to the point in their career where they should be a little bit closer to, to finished products. Yeah, for me, these these particular loans are, are just two years too late, probably for, for both players. Um, I, I don't have a problem with the fact that they're in Birmingham. In fact, I actually think that that's a bonus, and probably the reason why it, it happened at all was probably because you have the previous coaching staff and, and general manager and, and academy staff and several players that are going, yeah, we can we can absolutely use Haribo here. That'll be That'll be awesome. You know, Daigo Kobayashi and Zach Haravo in a in a in a midfield combination. Yes, please. I would. I have no problem with that. Yes, it's at a USL level. Yes, it's at a Open Cup level. Perhaps if if you're focusing on maybe on a, what the Rebs lineup would be, um, but that's where a lot of these guys need to get their game minutes. And you know, Zach Haravo barely has any at the MLS level. Brian Wright barely has any at the MLS level. So really, they should be getting easily thousand fifteen hundred minutes a year. In USL play, if they're not really going to be making the bench or being available to New England, they should absolutely be getting game minutes somewhere else. Would I prefer it to be in a place like Hartford? Selfishly, yes. Would I prefer it to be in a place like Providence? Also, probably selfishly, with Revs or two or Marksman, whatever you want to call it. Yes, sure, I would love that. But New England does not have that kind of a setup. So you have to go with really right now the best option is the guys that you had on the coaching staff two years ago who still probably loved and rate those guys because they drafted them and signed them out of the academy and out of the college ranks. So I think it's 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 a good move. I think it's probably too late, as Sean mentioned, for, for Wright, probably Haravo as well. Um, but Haravo, I don't know what position Haravo is, and this is like his third or fourth year as a pro. And it's not the first time I've asked that question. I still don't even really know what Diego Fagundes' position is, and he's got, you know, 50 goals, 50 assists, whatever the, whatever the numbers are for his career. So this isn't like a Reb-specific issue, and yet at the same time, um, it is. And, and yeah, I think Jones at some point should probably go somewhere and try and get minutes. Uh, if Rennix is not getting consistent minutes off the bench, I'm not talking about eight-minute cameos, Mr. Friedel. I'm talking about like 20, 30-minute clips off the bench three to four times a month. Um, then Rennix should probably... Uh, go out on loan. Nicholas Firmino should be a player who at this point, I don't think he's going to sniff um, an MLS game and, and maybe only sniff U.S. Open Cup minutes off the bench. He should be someone who should absolutely be out somewhere trying to get minutes instead of whatever this will. We want him to just build up a year in practice or the weight room, whatever it is. Mike, no, play game minutes. I don't care where they are. I don't care what level they are. If you're on the MLS roster and you're in that bottom five or six guys who are really going to be the third, the true third guys on all the depth board positions, go find minutes somewhere else, play as much soccer as you can. Doesn't have to be in new England right away. We've seen successes from other places that USL success translates into the MLS after a couple of years. Um, go play. Yeah. And, and 
I'm going to kind of piggyback off of what you guys are saying. I, I think the age says a lot of about what they expect this move to be. If they were to loan out Firmino and Teon Buchanan, for example, ages 17 and 19, and get them one season under their USL, to me, that is development. I think they look at the ages of Hervo and Wright, and they realize they're they're blocked from getting into the 18, let alone the starting lineup, and they need to figure out what exactly these players are, and they don't have a whole lot of time to figure out what they are. So, um, yeah, it's great that they found a home for them in Birmingham. I'm sure they'll keep a close eye on them. I'm curious to see what they do for the Open Cup, and I'm curious to see what they do for the friendly against Chelsea, because there are some situations where I think they could call them back and then loan them back to Birmingham in, in case they need reinforcements. But to me, this strikes me as they want to either... You know, Haribo and Wright are either playing for their roster spot and they need to do it in Birmingham or they're trying to pump up some trade value uh, because their roster spots for 2020 is quite shaky. Um, I I will also say that I'm curious to see if this is a short term thing with Birmingham or if Jay Heaps and Tommy Stone have an interest in in doing maybe a partnership uh, maybe something long-term. Maybe they want to keep their connection with the revolution where they can benefit from getting players. To me, as you said, Jake, Haravo and Wright are guys that, you know, Jay Heaps brought into the team. He knows exactly what he's getting with these players. He seems to, when he's forming his initial roster, he seems to be bringing in guys that he knows and trusts like Femi uh, and and uh, Diego, or, or Diego, sorry, not Diego, Diego. Uh, and uh, he, he's Later also heck. got Shervin Spangenberg. And also, mm-hmm. uh, Sean, what's the name of the other keeper that was on the Revs for 20 minutes? Yeah, Mr. Oh, Mr. Joe Nasco. A month and a half of the offseason he was on the team. But yeah. Was it there? I, didn't, I don't remember it being that long, but... Uh, it, it, yeah, I, I don't remember being that long either, but it was. <laughs> also, uh, hashtag free Joe Nasco, because he, I don't think he was on the bench last week. I think they started someone else and Spangenberg was the backup, but yep. Femi, I think started right away and played like 70 or 80 minutes. And, and Haribo came off the bench. Was that the starting lineup or did I have it backwards? Yeah, Haribo started 90 minutes and apparently played pretty well. Wright came in and played about 30 minutes and apparently had a scoring chance that was cleared okay. off the line. That's fine. So that's what I saw on Twitter. So they, they apparently played decently. Well, um, all, and, I can, all I can say is that I hope Kano Smith, who is the assistant coach there, is not trying to teach those guys how to shoot. <laughs> those, are, those are two gifts that are never going to die. Kano Smith's free kick and Carlos Gill's VAR celebration. Those <laughs> will never die. And again, I love it. So uh, moving on to some other, I guess, roster news, but three players from the Revolution were called into national duty. Renex is going to get some time with the US U20 team. Uh, Gabriel Somi is going to get some minutes in. Very exciting for him. He's he's going to be called up to Syria. Uh, and Haribo uh, is called up to Haiti. So Haribo yeah. <laughs> getting minutes at Birmingham and at Haiti now. Um, no De La Mea on this list, which was a bit interesting, but considering that the players are going to be unavailable for next week's game against Cincinnati, I kind of read into this that maybe the Revolution were kind of discouraged De La Mea from getting called up, or, or maybe they said he had commitments here. I, I know clubs at points have uh, influence over national team rosters, so that's my speculation. I'm not sure if you guys have anything to add. Kind of seems run of the course. Those three guys have been called into the national camp here and there, so... It seems like Sony had been locked out for a little bit from, from Syria, at least I, the impression that I get from, uh, or at least whether he was getting called up, wasn't getting minutes. So it'll be interesting to see if he gets back and gets minutes, particularly when he's not playing at the club level. But it is fascinating that uh, the revolution, um, you know, have three players getting called up and they're, you know, two guys that are very much not a part of the 18 and one guy that is, you know, a young player that 
you know, might get some minutes and making the bench and is promising, but none of their actual, you know, regular starters are getting the national team call-ups. It's these, you know, kind of outsider guys getting called up to not very good national teams and guys that aren't really playing for the team. And I, I also say, too, that there was a time where I thought that if they went and they had a very strong game, that that might influence minutes here. But I remember Christian Nemeth would have some really strong performances internationally, and then he'd come Probably, back. Yeah. And he'd come off the bench, so I, I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot to say. If Gabriel Somi comes out, goes out and, and has a hat trick from left back, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's going to make the 18 or anything like that. So, um, but kind of worth noting uh, that those three guys will not be available next week. Um, and then I don't know if you guys want to touch on it at all. Uh, Revs made the New York Times this week. Pretty cool that they were in national news. I don't think there was really anything new that. Revs fans were, were not expecting to see from it other than that DP is now going to make it in May or July, which isn't exactly imminent. Um, not totally sure what the holdup is there. I guess it's con- contractual issues. Um, but that was my only real takeaway from the New York Times uh, article. Do you guys have any other thoughts? So the, the May or July thing tells me that it's somebody that's contract is probably up in July and the Revolution are trying to figure out if they can uh, give them a little bit money to end his, his contract perhaps as soon as the season's over instead of once it ends in you know the end of June. Um, so that's my, my thought there. But the only thing I will say is I agree there was nothing new in this article except for that tidbit. Uh, anyone that's been following the team long time knows everything about that. And I don't think the target audience of the New York Times article was Revs fans. Um, so I, I do think this is very notable that the revolution recovered in the New York Times, and I do think it's very notable that it was, you know, th- there are positives in it, but I think overall it was a, a negative piece about the Crafts spending and how it compares to other teams in the league and, and how the Crafts have handled this team. Um, so I do think that's kind of a big deal. I don't know how much the Crafts care about, you know, I, I, I think the Crafts do care about their reputation. So the the fact that the New York Times is, is you know, putting out a piece like this and, you know, making it a, you know, fairly sizable piece in their paper, um, I think that is something that, you know, perhaps will get the craft's attention. I don't know if it will change their their attitude or, or how they handle the team, but I do think it's notable, and I think it's probably more notable than, you know, Grant Wall every year putting them low on their ambition rankings, because the only people that read that are, are soccer fans, um, but the only people that read the New York Times with an you know, article titled about Kraft's other problem um, might be a bit more than soccer fans. So, you know, yes, nothing new in there, but also at the same time, still very notable. Yep, and we'll just kind of move on to our final thoughts now. I'm going to lead off because I have a good one, and I think I'm going to steal at least one of yours. But uh, our old friend Claude Dielna made his first start with the Portland Timbers tonight and did not have a great night. Uh, you won't believe this, you guys, but uh, someone he was covering on a set piece scored. So Claude Dielna uncha- also has not changed from last season. You know, I think it's it's a, probably – a thing that Rose fans will be happy to see is that he did not go to, I mean, it was his debut, but he went to Portland and made the same mistakes he made with the Revs. Um, so, I, you know, I think the revolution were a bit vindicated, or at least Brad Friedel was a bit vindicated in um, his decision to, to kind of move away from him as the season went on, but maybe at the same time, another questionable decision to have made him captain in the first place. But yeah, he didn't look very good for Portland today. There were at least two goals that could be partly pinned on him and, you know, a couple other chances that I think he... Uh, was directly responsible for as well. So not not a great debut. Uh, yeah, the, the, any the other final we, thoughts, guys, before we no, depart? The, the oh. fact that means that, that somehow the Revolution were able to trade DLN, and more importantly, Claude Giolo's contract, which I'm assuming is still quite large and would involve TAM or something to buy down, uh, to another team and got something in return for it. And that, regardless of your opinion of, of, of Claude Dielna and, and his tenure in New England, which I thought was fine, uh, the last three, four months, not notwithstanding, as he was playing left back for most of that before he got benched, uh, I, I still remain stunned that, that New England was able to find anyone 
uh, to pick up that contract and, and, and make that trade as opposed to just outright waiving him uh, entirely. And, and I am still slightly surprised that Gabriel Somi has not been waived or, or bought out or something and, and still remains on the roster um, despite effectively being the, the second best fullback available, not named Andrew Farrell, who is magically uh, healed and can see again. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not necessarily surprised at, at, at Dillon's news. Welcome, Portland, to the club. Um, sorry. Um, I, I, I tried to warn you guys. At least I thought I did. So, I don't know. It, it feels it, it feels sort of a bummer that we have to we have to sort of harp on. Hey, look, one good thing happened. Claude Dion is still bad. That's the highlight. That's the highlight of the week. Hey, look, Claude Dion is still. <laughs> and for the record, for for the record, uh, Seth uh, also tweeted out that according to Tayon Buchanan, uh, Somi is the funniest guy on the team. So he's kind of like the clubhouse glue guy. He's like the Johnny Gomes of the Revolution. So, so that's why they didn't buy those contracts. That's, right. why, uh, that's why it's uh, about. It all makes sense. Well, I, I, have, I do have a shout out though, and it's a positive one along the same lines, and it's to Christian Namath, who is the leading goal scorer in the CONCACAF Champions League right now yes. with four goals. Um, and it's been a very embarrassing last round for MLS teams, except for Kansas City, who are the only MLS team left going into the semifinals, and in large part, thanks to Christian Namath's goal scoring, who's got four goals in four games. Um, so we can uh, bash on Dielna, but on the flip side, Christian Namath is tearing it up, um, both in MLS play and in Open Cup play for Sporting Kansas City, because uh, I believe he scored an MLS goal as well, unless I'm making that up. But he's, you know, he's been phenomenal for Kansas City getting back into their system. So Dielna, Dielna just as poor. Namath has been doing just as well as he did back when he was first with Kansas City. As someone who invested in uh, Atlanta to win the Champions League, I, I refuse to comment on anything that's going on in the Champions <laughs> League right now. I want nothing to do with it. So I'm just going to move on. Jake, do, uh, do you have any other final thoughts? I, I want to reiterate a particular stance that I probably will catch flack for. And I believe have already been, been retweeted or favorited or something uh, uh, about from the Revolution uh, team account. Remind everyone my stance on puns. All puns are bad. Most puns, whether I see them or they are directed to me, will get booed. You have been warned. Okay. The, the particular puns in question today from Brad Feldman, the legend himself. He's making the any revs cry uncle. No. Headline writers. No. <laughs> These are bad. Do not, do not go down this road. And there was another one that was bad too that I'm going to have to dig up because it upset me. While you're digging it up, I just yep. want to say that the views and opinions of Jay Cat and East do not reflect the opinions of yes, the Revolution. No, as, as with everything, pun away. Yes. As as you know, I'm a big pun fan, so yeah, I I think I was one of the ones that flagged the other pun, which you might be talking yes, about. Which you, which was, are you talking it about? Was, it was you retweeted it or you yes. tweeted it and JT pinged it to me <laughs> because someone at Weber King, I think I've met him before, time gills all wounds. Well, it's because no. it's, it's really heels. No, he... I know, I know. Let me let me break again. Headline writers. No. No, these are bad. No. These are great. No. You know, I miss I liked I, it. I miss when we had New England soccer today because we, Brian and I would, would go to games and we'd try to come up with who could have the better pun for the headline. And sometimes they were just so good we had to use them. So, and, I, and I believe, in case you're wondering, I probably booed most of them. I, I, I'm sure you did. <laughs> I'm sure I Yeah, it's, it's, it became a problem a couple of years ago because a lot of them had to be, you know, this, this was in the time when the Dark Age was about to start again. And some of them probably were clever, but again, my stance is they're all bad. 
There are just some that are I have to respect the level of either commitment or creativity, and that is very, very rare. It has these happened opinions before. of Jake Ennis do not it reflect these opinions of Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jake, uh, where can people follow you on Twitter and send you puns? Uh, you can attempt to send me puns. They will be booed to at jkatniss43. You can find probably at least one article of of yellow third yellow card and, and VAR-related shenanigans uh, at least this week on the Bent Musket, depending on the overtime uh, work schedule uh, this week. But I am, I am off tomorrow, so hopefully um, if I don't get a phone call in the next hour, um, we, can, we can tackle a little bit of that uh, tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, the Bent Musket might be might be a very interesting spot to debate or learn things about the rule book and why I continue to hate it. It'll be a busy week for you. I got to say, you chose a great week to come on. There's a lot of refereeing to talk about. And I want to remind everyone, the IFAB changed the handball rule again. We might have to talk about that too. And make sure you also follow the Bent Musket on Twitter at the Bent Musket. Uh, Sean, where can people follow you on Twitter? You can follow me at Sean Aldonahue and make sure you follow our Facebook page uh, or like our Facebook page, rather, Revolution Recap on Facebook. And if you know people start commenting there, too, we'll take those questions as well. I was going to say I meant to post a status because we, we have had more people liking our, our Facebook uh, page. And I, I did mean to send it out, but w- this is kind of a last minute podcast and we want to get this up uh, before yeah, the week. So we, we kind of, we're neglecting right. Facebook for yeah. one more yeah, sorry. We're kind of we're kind of cramming this in after a post game, which is not how we normally want to do this. We want to do this when Jake is not working on Mondays or yeah. Tuesdays, which we can do for the next two weeks, and then my we, work schedule screws me again. So we also said we were going to keep this to under an hour after we tortured everyone with an hour and fifty minute podcast last week, and we're we're about twenty minutes late. So sorry, everyone. We'll never have an hour fifty minute podcast. Carl <laughs> has been giving us crap all week about it, so it is from now on nothing more. An hour and a half maximum. We'll just cut it off. Like, there's no <laughs> way it's going any longer than that. We're off the rails right now, too. But uh, we, we'll, th- we will keep it to a minimum in the future. I just want to let everyone know that that was the exception, not the rule. But uh, you can also follow. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Ted Uncle was off the rails about two and a half hours ago. So we're still doing <laughs> better. On- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said I wasn't. Ah, Jake, Jake. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap. And as Sean said, you can like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Uh, the Revs will return home next week. And for the first time ever in Revolution history, we can finally say we're on to Cincinnati. Uh, we'll be back with the new episodes next week. Uh, I've been waiting three weeks to say that. Just- Jake's never coming on the show again. <laughs> We'll be, we'll actually, before I end this, I want to say that I think this is the first podcast ever where we have an Eagles fan in New England yes. and a Patriots fan in Philadelphia. Yes. The same podcast. We're, we're, Nothing we're building bridges. Sense. We're, we're, yeah. I also will point out someone, his name's Greg Johnstone, just said that I lived in New England. Count it. Mark the time. Oh. Stamp of the podcast. Oh. It's official. Fairfield County, Connecticut <laughs> is a part of New England. Good night, everyone. <laughs> we'll be back with a new episode next week in reaction to the first ever match against FC Cincinnati. But until then, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and go Rebs. <laughs>